what would really be helpful and where can we help? Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook, presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 15, and today's guest is Bernadine Wu. Bernadine is a longtime industry friend and the co-founder of Fit for Commerce. I've completed some projects as a consultant for Fit for Commerce, as well as having them execute projects for me while at Steve Madden and Amerimark. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at hippodirect.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Bernadine, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Happy to be here. Well, I'm glad that uh, we were able to find some time to do this. We're recording uh, at the end of uh, May 2020. Uh, we're all sitting in the middle of this uh, global pandemic. How are you and your family uh, doing through all of this? We're doing great, actually. Uh, it's, of course, interesting times, as they say. Um, I actually have enjoyed lockdown because I have uh, my kids uh, are stuck with me. But, uh, you know, I know it's very stressful um, in a lot of corners, you know, health-wise as well as business-wise. So uh, I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about it. It's hard to have a conversation uh, without talking about it, but um, you know, my heart, my thoughts go to everyone uh, who may be struggling. Yeah, uh, agreed. Thank you. Uh, but before we we jump into conversations around retail and and its impact, let's go back to what I, I've heard some friends talk about as as your first story. So you know, growing up, uh, family life. You know, and, and what do you attribute perhaps, you know, your upbringing or any aspects of your upbringing to what you ultimately did in your career? <laughs> well, I'm a born and bred New Yorker, uh, which means I can talk a lot faster than I'm talking right now. Definitely a product of growing up in the city. And, uh, you know, there was a time when I knew how to get from anywhere to anywhere on the subway. I was definitely a uh, city rat, as my, my mom used to call me had classic kind of uh, tiger parents, but I, you know, I appreciate how focused they were on my education and preparing me for the future. One of my first jobs was actually lifeguarding. And um, in a way that was sort of like a, an easy, fun job. I was a swimmer um, growing up, but um, I don't know, maybe it was the start of something, uh, some mindset around uh, being a lifesaver. I think a lot of what I learned in growing up in the city and growing up kind of fast, you know, has definitely played into my, um, my life, which has been rich and diverse. I grew up with many different colors and creeds and religions around me. So I've always um, been used to a very diverse crowd. It, it actually was um, kind of shocking to me when I went to college at Dartmouth in New Hampshire um, to be a minority and kind of what that meant. And um, it's kind of funny that I I didn't think about these things until I got into, you know, the work world or, or other areas about being uh, a minority and a, and, uh, and a female. You know, I would say that those things have, have definitely shaped me for sure. And I've had lots of different jobs 
since. <laughs> did the, uh, before you get into the other jobs, did being a minority, being a woman make you work harder? Did you have to work harder to get what you thought you, you wanted to get? Definitely. I mean, I think people work hard for any number of reasons or wiring. So I like to think that I had that wiring and my parents certainly had that, have that wiring. Um, but I think there is um, an element of being a minority, probably more about being, um, you know, a little Asian girl than being a female in the early days. I mean, there's, you know, the Asian Americans often feel like the invisible race, right? We're supposed to be overachievers and, you know, true to form. I had piano lessons and was supposed to be a doctor, but, uh, you know, gave up, <laughs> gave up piano in high school and um, changed majors when I was in college. But um, yeah, I definitely think so. I think there's like an extra amount of, you know, if I'm, if I'm not going to be the, the, you know, the tallest or the most physically strong or have the biggest booming voice, then I better be the smartest person uh, or most capable person in the room. So yeah, I, I think that's true. All right, gotcha. And and so you graduated Dartmouth, and and what did you you know start as your career path? So I went through uh, corporate recruiting, which is you know pretty big there. And I thought I wanted to be an investment banker, a trader, be on Wall Street. It was of course very it was very romanticized at the time, um, but I actually ended up in consulting, and I started at uh, what was then Anderson Consulting. I thought I was joining a management consulting group. Um, and then when I showed up, it turned out to be information managing, you know, IT consulting. So all of a sudden, as an English major, I had to learn programming. But, you know, it was the best thing that could have happened to me because, first of all, I learned that I was not a fantastic programmer. <laughs> but I got it. And I learned, you know, technology from the basics, from, you know, from the code level up. And um, it gave me a great a great experience and a great appreciation for technology. I also learned amazing PowerPoint skills <laughs> because we work a lot on proposals and presentations and so on. So from the technology side, the PowerPoint skills, and also the, we did of course do business consulting. I think those three things are foundations that I take with me and use every day, you know, even as I progress into different industries and, and different fields. So how long of a, a period of time uh, was it from graduation at uh, Dartmouth to when Fit for Commerce uh, was developed? Oh, gosh, then, I, then you'd know how old I was. <laughs> Maybe there's a method to the madness. You know, I've, no, I've known you for a long time and I have no idea. You know. <laughs> oh, that's nice of you to say. You know, it's, as I look back, I wouldn't say it was a linear route, but, it, but there, was, there were some progressions. Anderson then, Accenture now, was a really large company. It was like 50,000 people. And every company that I went to got smaller and smaller. After Accenture, I actually did go to Wall Street, but I worked more in strategy around um, trading technology and um, technology strategies. Um, and that's where it was great to have that both business side and technical background. And I learned a lot about Wall Street, and I actually realized I don't want to be a banker and I don't want to be a trader, but I, I like being the help. So from there, I went on to a couple of other Wall Street firms and then went to one, what was one of the earliest uh, online trading, but this is uh, institutional trading systems um, at the time. 
And uh, that was kind of an intro into, you know, the early days of the Internet. And then from there, I was asked to start a company that was a technology provider, one of the first software as a service e-commerce providers to uh, the retail industry. And so that was my entree into um, into this industry, um, which is funny because people think, you know, they normally think, oh, were you a merchant? Were you a marketer? And, and really, I wasn't. But I, I have learn to pick up industries and and pick up um you know the business knowledge along the way so ran this technology company and uh, started a couple of other companies and then just sort of re- an observation you get to that point in your life sometimes where you can sit back and observe and see well, what is the need in the industry and at the time about 12 years ago we just saw a lot of brands and retailers and and retail companies um struggling with digital and e-commerce because it was, you know, as you know, Mark is practically new, you know, 10, 20 years ago, you know, the catalogers and some of the larger companies had started to figure it out, but not really. And so we saw an opportunity there to help the market. And that's when we launched Fit for Commerce in 2008, of course, not a great, great time <laughs> in the in the market. Yeah, good you had timing. good timing, Bernard, didn't you? <laughs> but, um, you know, we, we, we did fine at that time and, and were able to help. Um, I mean, we're proud to have helped, gosh, I think almost 600 brands and retailers and and businesses um, with their digital growth since right. then. All right. So so you create Fit for Commerce in, in a sentence mm-hmm. or two, and you kind of just alluded to it in a sentence or two. What is Fit for Commerce? So we think of ourselves as a specialized consultancy that helps businesses grow by leveraging digital. And I know that sounds really broad. It's kind of an intentional, but really most businesses and I mean, almost all businesses now need to rely on digital and technology and e-commerce or, you know, what we now call omni-channel in order to grow. And in fact, it used to be retailers and, and brands, but now it's anybody selling anything, you know, online. Um, of course, the grocers have come along and, you know, travel and hospitality and financial services and and so on. So anybody selling anything online, we have a a team of, uh, you know, I consider them sort of uh, Navy SEALs, folks that have been there, done that, and run e-commerce practices, run direct-to-consumer, run retail, people like you, Mark, where you guys can bring that hands-on, you know, practical experience. Having worked at one of the big consultancies, one of the things that I found is that there are a set of clients that that just really need that expertise at the right time to do, you know, you know, a really important project or get them going on something and work alongside them in a, you know, in a really lean way. And and that's kind of the way that we've built the company. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes um, in consultants, um, you know, we, you ha- you're in a, let's say you're a role person in a company, you know, I've been in a number of different positions and it's despite the fact that you have respect internally, uh, it's always nice to have an independent third party come in and, and help you validate or help you think through, you know, difficult challenges. You know, I, I know that you guys served, a, you personally served a good role for us at, at Madden, where you participated as a moderator mm-hmm. of, or of sorts uh, from our senior team um, so that, you know, we could, you know, identify a roadmap and, and try to stay on, um, on, on a certain game plan of, of the things we wanted to roll out. So, you know, I, I do see, you know, lots of uh, need for that. So how do you, 
think about yourself against versus the other consultancies? How do you differentiate yourself? Well, I, I like to say that we're big enough and we're small enough. So, you know, we do compete with the big guys and, and often win, sometimes not. Sometimes our com- competition is an independent consultant, a single person. Sometimes our biggest competition is the internal team uh, deciding not to do anything or not to take on this project. And half the time they call us a year later and say, you know, that that thing that we needed to do, you know, we, we, we're ready. We need your help now. You know, as you kind of alluded to before, like we can take different roles in a way or perform different roles. In some cases, it's we'll join your team because you're missing a, you know, a CMO or a, um, uh, you know, a architect or a marketing person. Uh, or a leader, uh, sometimes it's, we really need to get this initiative done and we don't have the bandwidth for it. Could you guys help do it? Or we don't have the expertise and we need you to bring your experience and the fact that you've done this dozens of times before. Um, or it's, you know, it's, uh, we come on as an accelerator. So if you think about, you know, any situation, right, whether it's business or personal, if you could wave a magic wand and, you know, you know, some genie shows up to do whatever it is you need them to do, in, in some ways, that's how we can morph. I know it's, I know it's very cliche for, for people to say, you know, give a consultant says, give me your watch and they'll tell you what time it is. <laughs> but there's sort of some truth to that. And that, you know, we have different perspective and we have you know, we have data, we have um, IP, and we have experience that we can bring to the table. And I think, you know, if planned right and lean, then it can also be affordable. Right. Well, what have you learned about running your own business as well as being, you know, kind of the face of your consultancy and, and people oftentimes coming to work with you or want to work with you because they want Bernadine? You know, you obviously <laughs> are backed up by lots of good people, but I, you know, I've heard you talk to me about that. Um, so what have you learned? Well, it is certainly rewarding. We get a lot of kudos. We're really, really proud of the reputation we have and, you know, when we walk around trade shows and I hope, I hope we all get to walk around trade shows again soon mm. in the future. We, we feel like rock stars because we have so many contacts in the industry. Even if someone has not been a client of ours, you know, there's just a ton of, of recognition and, and goodwill. But I have to say it's running the company, you know, being a business owner and an entrepreneur, it's hard. I mean, it's, it's really hard. And I've, I've run departments that have multi-million dollar budgets, but when it's your own money and, you know, you're responsible for the payroll of, you know, 30 families, which means you're affecting, you know, 30 times whatever, two to four people per family, that's a lot of pressure. So anybody that is an entrepreneur, whether they are a one-man shop or one-woman shop or multiple, I, you know, I, I give them a lot of kudos because there's, there's a lot of guts that it takes to get there or craziness. I'm still thinking there's more craziness on for me. And so it's hard. And so I like, there is definitely a difference between being an executive who has, you know, a a job at a company and yes, you feel like you own it and you operate like you own it. That is still different than actually owning it and running it. Now, having said that, you know, I didn't, I didn't call it woo consulting on purpose. We set out to build a team and a capability and, you know, to be honest, I'm not involved in 80% of our sales or our projects. 
Um, and that, that speaks to the power of the team. And so the way that we've constructed our practice and our business is really so that the, the client is buying the team. And to be honest, I'm not the best consultant either. The team is filled with amazing skills and talent and personalities that are better than me. Sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the talking head, uh, like right now. And so maybe, you know, I, I may get a little bit more visibility, but we're, I, I think we're really great at promoting our team and, you know, everyone writes white papers and speaks at conferences and, and, and gets, you know, visibility as well as um, doing the hard work. Got it. And when you, when you are um, selling a deal, um, who's generally the, the group or what's the group in a potential client that's bringing you in? Is it, uh, it may be uh, all of the above that I'll, I'll talk about, you know, is it a board? Is it the president or CEO? Is it middle management? Is it IT mm -hmm. versus marketing? You know, give me some flavor about that. Well, you said it. I mean, Mark, it's, it's all of the above. Every, you know, client situation is um, is somewhat unique in, in that you got to figure out who are the stakeholders, who is the actual, you know, economic sponsor, as we call it, who are the inside coaches, who are the folks that, you know, what roles do they play internally? Um, I, you know, I, I have sold software in the past. I have sold, you know, services in the past. This kind of a sale on the one hand is very easy because everybody needs help. It's just a question of what kind of help, how much, where, who, you know, for what. But at the same time, sometimes that help is not so easily defined. So sometimes a client will, you know, they'll kind of know that they need help, but they don't know what help. They, they, they probably couldn't even write a brief saying, you know, this is what I'm trying to do. They, they, it's almost like they can just talk. And we have to take in what they're saying and we have to be good listeners to hear, hear them and hear through what they're saying so that we can, and again, use our experience to understand what are they, what do they really need, or what, what are they really, what would really be helpful, and where can we help? Other times, you know, clients are very clear, and it's coming from, you know, the CIO, and it's a technology to do, or it's the CMO, and it's a marketing to do, or the, or the two paired together, uh, which is the best, you know, one of the best case scenarios is when the client's executive team or the sponsors are already aligned and know what kind of help they need. But some of the time or a lot of the time when we, when we are working with our clients, part of what we're doing also is alignment and educating amongst the management team or ownership and, um, or executive team. And so, yeah, we've got to kind of morph ourselves into the different, you know, to speak to the different uh, levels and corners of, of an organization. And that, that is all the way from, you know, private equity ownership, public companies and boards down to executive leadership, to management, to, you know, the team that's actually doing the work. And, and, you know, you've been at this 12 years with fit for commerce and, and obviously in, in e-commerce and in digital marketing, so much has changed and, and you talk about alignment. What, what have you seen about the organizational structure in these retail businesses or clients that you've had and how that organizational structure perhaps has changed over the last dozen years? It's definitely changed. I mean, Mark, you remember the years where, uh, you know, e-commerce was like that orphan child right on on the side and and um you know some brands and retailers felt like they had to have it or you know okay it's going to be a small percentage or they even wholly outsourced it to a vendor 
and then as it as it grew not just in size but also in importance because it became you know kind of like the main uh, representation of the brand e-commerce kind of got you know folded in and sometimes became a strategic you know important initiative and then all of a sudden the vp of e-commerce was popular and but then at this but at the same time that vp of e-commerce and that team was the digital team and everybody else was kind of still doing their thing but then chief marketing officers you know chief merchandising officers cios uh they became more digital and as well and became it became a much more integrated kind of a of an organization so again the you know the the team or the organization had to change and you saw people that like the digital marketer coming out from e-commerce and into the CMOs organization or some of the digital tech people going into the CIOs organization and then and then you had the admin of the chief digital officer which had 10 different kinds of definitions in 10 different companies um but often became the person who who had sort of like the digital you know the digital flag bearer and digital expertise but didn't didn't have all the line functions underneath them um and i would say recently i think the cdo role has somewhat gone away i think there's when an organization is looking to accomplish something with digital or now omnichannel or you know whatever <laughs> omnichannel is sometimes a, a bad word now and i don't know what uh, i don't know what kind of um words you know people you know, some people frown upon it but sometimes it's um it's still apropos but uh you know i i think that the the role is still morphing and who's involved is becoming broader to where now everyone has a role in digital from hr and legal and real estate all the way through you know operations and so on so i know that was a a long answer i mean sometimes it's a little bit of like you know it was centralized then it becomes decentralized then it goes back to being centralized and um and that's natural i think there's a natural progression for organizations to morph and to outsource and then bring something back in house and I, you know i guess i guess the last bit i'd say about that is that as long as there is an you know sort of an intention to it and a deliberateness to it that that's okay yeah I think that's a a good answer because I would agree with you that it's changed quite a bit. I've seen it in the roles that I've had. Um, I've seen decentralization, centralization. You know, I've seen you know uh, e-commerce underneath uh, four wall retail. I've seen it separated, you know, by itself. I've seen IT uh, separate uh, IT for for digital, and then also seen it under IT. So yeah. I think you're right. People are still just trying to figure it out, and and sometimes it's a function of the people that they have and and not wanting to upset the team you know you don't necessarily always have the right uh pegs uh in the right holes but that's a great point that it depends on the people as well you know sometimes we say like your next hire you know can change your your next next hire you know we we i, I would say that i don't know maybe a good 70% of our projects involve some kind of an organizational assessment development retooling because even if it's a technology project there is you know some amount of um organizational impact or change or retooling that's needed so you know alongside that project we will always have an uh, you know sort of an org perspective the devil's in the details you probably heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life 
projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that can make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who has helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. If we think back to, let's, let's say, before 2020 uh, started, what were the kinds of projects that or topics uh, that you were most uh, being asked about, you know, as it, just as an example, you know, each year, each couple of years, they're kind of new buzz terms or buzz mm-hmm. things like mm-hmm. buy online, pick up in store was, you know, very prevalent and still people being very slow. And let, let's do this pre-COVID. So what were, what were the hot buttons? Oh my God. Are we allowed to remember pre-COVID? <laughs> <laughs> I would say there were a lot of the staple projects projects going on, right? There's always people, there's always, you know, a a, a rethinking of marketing spend and, you know, e-commerce platforms and large systems as well as smaller point solutions. But I would say there's definite focus on data. And I know saying data sounds like motherhood in apple pie, but, you know, certainly customer data, but I, but, you know, I would say enterprise data is a big messy knot in most companies. Now, a couple, you know, years ago, you know, Mark, when we used to talk, it was how do I get at the data, right? How do I collect the data? Where is the data? How am I gonna get the data together? Generally, I'd say now, everybody's got a lot of data. It's just, you know, are, what are we using it for and how are we able to organize it and use it? And, you know, you know as they say, get them into insights and actionable. So a lot of the projects requests that we were getting in work was enterprise data or customer data platforms or you know bi and analytics and it's all it's all related of course and what makes this topic tricky is that there isn't one solution uh there isn't one you know set like one type of vendor and you just need to choose amongst these five vendors it's actually a an ecosystem or a, a set. And depending on your strategy, you might be able to solve it with two or three vendors or five vendors or, you know, four vendors and um, some custom development. And so it, it's client by client that we have to work through. So I'm, I'm going to go with data. Right. And, and isn't it, you know, sometimes a case of which is the next provider in is dependent upon what your tech stack already looks like and how much of an appetite you have to change more than one thing or two things? Yeah, I I think you said it. It's about the appetite for change. I haven't met a, you know, a CMO or a CIO that doesn't wish that they could start from scratch. Right. Right. That's that's where I was going. Yeah. (laughs) There's always going to be some legacy or, or some, you know, contract that you're inheriting or, or something. And even if you made the right decision three years ago, it might not be the right decision for now. So it, it is this, uh, you know, I call it like this puzzle piecing. And it is this re-rationalization of what do I have? Where do I want to be? What should I rip and replace now? What should I upgrade? What should I, you know, enhance with or, or add on to? Um, or what should I start from scratch with? It becomes like these, these crazy diagrams that yes, we're good consultants, we create these diagrams, but what they represent is is the thinking behind 
that vision and that roadmap to get there. And gosh, I've seen dozens and dozens and dozens of, of roadmaps and every single one of them is, is unique and has some parameters to it that, that are different. And, that, and that's just the hard work. I mean, whether you have consultants or not, that, that's the work that needs to be done. And it just takes, you know, rolling up your sleeve and, and thinking through the possibilities and documenting them and, and you know, exploring the, you know, the uh, feasibility and the cost structure and, and how does that affect the P&L and how does that affect my, you know, if you're the IT person, how does that affect your business counterparts and vice versa? Right. And so you, you, those were kind of comments, you know, pre-COVID. So now we're, you know, four months into COVID. The world is, you know, really changed quite a bit. Digital commerce, if it's if it's possible, seemingly even more important than it was before. So what's, if anything, what's different about the kinds of things that potential clients come to you asking about? Well, I think there's a saying now that the year 2030 just happened in 2020 that um, a lot of the plans that retailers, and again, I'm saying retailers as a broad term, that retailers had all of a sudden had to happen quickly. You know, so many were talking about BOPIS, byline pickup and store, click and collect, curbside, and these various omni-channel capabilities. And all of a sudden it became a matter of survival. So I think with the closing down of, of stores, um, at least for the you know the brick and mortar omni-channel retailers, uh, it became how do I serve the customer on my e-commerce site, uh, which of course involves warehouse fulfillment and customer service, and also how do I how do I do curbside pickup or contactless payments? Of course, the grocery you know and essentials retailers they stayed open and they had to figure out some changes to their physical stores, but, you know, the ones that, of course, were hit the hardest are the ones that have had to close down now for weeks and months. And, um, you know, that that project that was going to take three years or two years to, uh, you know, get better inventory in stores in order to do buy online, pick up in store, all of a sudden got done in three weeks, four weeks. Well, it, isn't that incredible, though? I mean, you know, yeah. I, I've, I've seen it as a consumer and I've seen it as a consultant you know, there's just so many things that, and maybe it's a little bit different than what you're saying, so many things that brands wanted to do, it was on their roadmap, they didn't get it done for whatever reason, they were afraid, they didn't have the resources, and now all of a sudden it's thrust upon them and they figure yeah. out how to do it. You know, I don't know what that says about our ability to make decisions or to, to really clear the decks to get things done, but it is incredible. Yeah, I mean, it, it's both a compliment as well as a um, not a compliment, right? That some of these things, you know, I, I, on roadmaps, you know, had longer timelines. But then, you know, when when it came down to survival, human nature is to is to figure stuff out. That's great. So I hope companies learn from this in a way that gives them a, a new mo, uh, you know, maybe even a new culture of um, experimentation faster of getting things done faster and not necessarily perfect. And, and I, you know, in the environment, in the COVID environment, the customer, uh, you know, despite seeing all these crazy videos of customers getting pissed off and spitting on each other, that's of course in the minority, but I think customers are a little more forgiving right now yeah. um, in, you know, in getting their contactless curbside pickup um, and being patient and waiting in the, you know, in the parking lot. So I, I there is this, 
window of, you know, a little bit of goodwill here, you know, that played into it. But we've always promoted brands and retailers to, you know, give space to experimentation. So hopefully some of these things will stick in terms of, you know, how quickly someone can turn something around, how quickly we can experiment with something and also, and also maybe blowing some budget on something that didn't work out and, you know, ownership or executive management seeing that as, as a win and not, not a fail. Right. Gotcha. Question. Do you get frustrated ever? <laughs> are we talking about with kids? Or are we talking about with a work here? <laughs> nah, work. Yeah. I mean, definitely. And how do you, how do you, de- how do you deal with the frustration that, you know, we, we inevitably all have with our work? Well, you know, my team is lucky. We, we work from home a lot <laughs> and we mm-hmm. go to our clients. So we, we're not in an office where we maybe where we have to watch ourselves a little bit. I think, look, I think if you're not, if you don't have frustration, then to a certain extent, you're not pushing yourself enough. And again, being a New Yorker, I think, you know, we grew up with some hard conditions and some, you know, and conflict and more of a street fighter kind of mentality. So, you know, frustration, I think, is a, is a natural part of it. In all my, you know, all those like management tests and things, like I'm, I have an analytical mind. And so I tend to break problems down and then solve for them, like as if they were like a math problem or, or something like that. I'm also a talker and I talk things through. I'm very lucky to have a team that are great listeners and are, are great thinkers. Uh, my co-founder, Cynthia Canaris, that you know, uh, she is a lifeline, and so we will have, you know, either very tactical sessions or very strategic sessions and venting sessions. And to be able to do all those three things, you know, either at one time or at, you know, spaced out at various times um, is important. I don't know if you remember, Mark, but in, in the early days, we had we had a booth at uh, one of the conferences, and, and it was a bit, all it was was a big sign, and it said, vent here in big letters. <laughs> no, and I don't remember. Like a, that. <laughs> there was a couch, and we we just thought, you know what? Let, let's just give that a try. People were coming. People were crying at our booth. Um, <laughs> they were just sharing, you know, their frustrations, and we just listened. Uh, we listened. We, I mean, there was. I mean, it sounds crazy, but you know, some some people were even like hugging as as they were leaving, and and we just listened, and we just and we learned from it. But I think we, you know, we, we felt like there was more of a connection, and I don't know, I might have to, I might have to bring that one back. But um, I think you know, sharing and listening and being compassionate are are important. And you know, what we're going through right now, of course, is like such an extreme test of our humanity, and there's nothing like something like this to bring out the worst of us in us and the best in us. If you had the opportunity to, as I know you probably do anyway, to sit in front of CEOs, presidents of, you know, some handful of specialty retailers or department store management, what would you say to them now in, in May of 2020 about things that they were perhaps not willing to do previously that they just absolutely have to do in this new normal? I guess, you know, first is like, it's never too late or hopefully it's never too late and that there are still some things that we can do now. Uh, We were just having a conversation about uh, flash sales 
that if someone someone's e-commerce is not you know maybe up to snuff that uh, you know having a, a flash sale site stood up within two weeks might be a, a good solution. If you don't have the digital team or marketing team that you need, go borrow it, go get one, go hire, go you know go go ask for help. I think uh, you know we've seen some retailers have daily strategy sessions because information and the environment is changing um you know physically and digitally um on a daily basis and of course by state by county et cetera too so i yeah i think i'd go back to my main message which is it's it's never too late yes it is the year 2030 so what are you going to do about it and you know let's roll up our sleeves and prioritize i think and you alluded to this early in the, our conversation mark that you know there's a lot of stuff that a brand or a retailer could do, right? You ask anybody, they've got a list as long as their arm of, of things that they know they need to do or, you know, as, whether it's because they, they want to do it or they see what their competitors are doing. You know, the question is just what's the priority? And so, you know, again, whether you do this with consultants or without, it's just rolling up your sleeves and going through that long list and then prioritizing and understanding where are we going to get bang for the buck? And the only thing that's changed pre-COVID versus now is that the formula into bang for the buck might have changed, right? The drivers might have changed now, but it's still the same foundation. It's still the same basics that are needed. So, you know, suddenly curbside became way more important right now. You know, I don't, people ask about post-COVID. I don't think there's such a thing as a post-COVID. It's just a new normal. And, And even if, you know, even when there's a vaccine or when there's treatment or if we, if or when we, you know, kick COVID ass, there's going to be another potential virus or germ or infection or something that comes along. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that's the way of the world. So I think it's, the question isn't post-COVID, it's more what's the new norm. I mean, some of our clients were, we were doing exercises with them a year ago, two years ago, three years ago where the exercise was, what if 50% of our uh, revenue came from online, right? Like, how, should, how can we get there? How can we make that happen? And, and these were thoughts for really deeply rooted brick-and-mortar stores. Right, but wasn't that, was that, that 50% was really as a portion of a larger business, not so kind of growing into it being 50% and growing the top line, not shrinking the business and then having now 50%, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the thinking was ahead of its time a couple of years ago or even last year. Right. But now all of a sudden it's, it's survival thinking and yeah, in a worse scenario where the top line is down too. Yep. Gotcha. How, how do you deal with tough clients? You know, you must hmm. uh, look, you, geez, you had to work with me. Um, and I'm sure there's you know, <laughs> a lot easier and, and certainly, you know, hopefully some are a lot tougher. But how, how do you deal with a tough client? And, and how would you define a tough client? You know, is it before the deliverable is done? Is it during the process? What is it? Well, okay, first of all, you are, you were a tough client but because it's because you're tough on yourself and, and you're also actually a nice guy. I, I know the audience <laughs> might be, you know, <laughs> I'll vouch for you being a, a nice guy too. And, and, and a good friend, but you know, I look, I think people are just 
trying to do the right thing, you know, and that right thing may be a combination of what's right for my company and what's right for me in their jobs. And our job is to help the company and also help, you know, whoever's our sponsor or the team we're working with do great things, do great work, look good. Yes, there are tough personalities out there. Um, again, it goes back to that listening and, and compassionate, uh, you know, kind of vent here kind of mentality that we, we've had. And what we find out is that if somebody's being tough, it's because they want something. They care about something. We, it's our job to figure out what, what that is and, what, like, what is that hot button or what, or what is it or what is this person really struggling with because maybe what they're struggling with isn't the mechanics of this project and the to-do. Maybe it's the politics. Maybe yeah. it's the, you know, the history of it or the pressure that, that they have on it. So I can't say that we – I can't say that we were like, you know, perfect in every scenario because we're people too. And we've, we've learned along the way, but I, I, I don't think that there's a tough client that we haven't been able to have, you know, you know, a good working relationship with. And, and, you know, we have like a 99.9 percent, you know, client satisfaction and, and re referenceable and so on. And we haven't actually done the, like use NPV, but I think if we did, we, we would, probably score high but you know and then sometimes I, I you know as I talk about with the team there there are times when someone is just going to be a tough cookie and you still need to figure out how to get what you need or want to do right by the client company yeah absolutely well look and I think the tribute to you guys is how many people I know myself included that have worked with you at multiple stops you know along their career path and you know generally speaking you know unless you've done good work the first time uh, they're not going to bring you back the second time. So I, I think that's that's important. So we're uh, getting down to the end of uh, of our show here and our time together. Um, at the end of the show, I do a what we call a two-minute drill. So there's seven questions that I ask each of the guests. Okay, if I uh, run you through those seven questions. Sure. Okay, first one, a brand that you admire or that inspires you? I'm going to go actually with Airbnb because oh. I've used Airbnb. I'm an Airbnb host and Airbnb has given me a whole new, um, I don't know, trust in humanity because there's a lot of generosity and kindness in the process. And I think that's what Airbnb represents. Great. Favorite app that's on your phone. My kids aren't going to like it, but life 360 it's an app where you can track the people and where they are, and I can <laughs> see exactly where my kids have been and how long. And when your son goes to college, are you going to disable that? Yes, but not yeah. really. But I don't think he's going to listen to this. <laughs> okay. uh, the last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Oh, I think it's probably Home Depot. I uh, recently had a birthday and um, I wanted a leaf blower. That was your birthday present? Yes. Wow. It's awesome. And, right. and then, of course, I got the leaf blower and then I had to get the noise canceling, the really yeah, cool yeah, noise canceling right. Bose <laughs> headphones as an excuse. Yeah. Something that you're not good at, but that you wish that you were. Car mechanics, for sure. Hmm. I could just see you sliding under the car to fix your, uh, to change your oil. I'm very mechanical. I'm very good spatially, but I just cannot understand car mechanics. 
a charitable organization that you're passionate about? Uh, well, usually anything girls, anything about promoting girls. We work with Souls for Souls, um, Dress for Success, and Women for Women. Maybe there's something in the, some, you know, the, the number four, like Fit okay. for Commerce. <laughs> if you had one superpower, what would it be? To fly. And other than your family, what's your most prized possession? Ooh, my Snoopy. I'm a big Snoopy what's fan. Oh, I didn't know that about you. So that now when I, when I go to a conference and you ask for our fun facts, um, I'm going to be able to know a fun fact about you. Okay, there it is. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So Bernadine, thank you for doing this. Um, if uh, people are interested in reaching out to you, where on social media is the best way to find you? At Fit for Commerce. Um, that's F-I-T-F-O-R, Commerce, all one word, or on LinkedIn, Fit for Commerce. And I've really enjoyed this, Mark. Really appreciate it. I love knowing you and working with you. And um, this has been great. I can't believe it's been almost an hour. Yeah. Well, look, thank you. It, uh, the feeling's mutual. Uh, we've had a really nice friendship for uh, more than 10 years now. And, uh, you know, I've always valued your opinions and the people that you work with. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, you have a great team and very much enjoy getting to, to know all of them. So anyway, stay well, good health to your family. Talk to you soon. Likewise. Take care now. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Bernadine Wu for coming on the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, yet again, we heard a story where the guest started down one career path and navigated to another. We heard Bernadine's story about being on Wall Street in tech strategy, which eventually brought her to boutique consulting. Your career is a process, so enjoy the ride and use each stop as a building block. Number two, organizational structure can sometimes be guided not by what you think is optimal, but by the people you currently have within your team. We often deal with the square peg in the round hole. You know that you want to change the structure, but you're stuck because you just do not have the right people. Make the tough choices, either train and evolve the people to fit what you need, or move on and bring in the right team. And number three, the year 2030 has happened in 2020. Digital initiatives are at the top of all retailers' roadmaps, and what might have waited to get done down the road most likely cannot wait. It's incredible how quickly some brands have moved on projects that they were thinking about doing but never got to during this pandemic. We need to have the mindset all the time. How do we best service our customers now? Do not look for reasons you cannot do something. Execute on the 90% solution rather than waiting for you to be able to execute the perfect solution. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details. Yeah.